following sermon was delivered at Antioch Presbyterian Church, a mission work of Calvary Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Woodruff, South Carolina. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com or contact us at info at AntiochPCA.com. May the Lord bless you as you receive gracious instruction from His Word. Well, our story begins in 1815 in Digne, France. Our hero's name is Jean Valjean. He has just been released from prison after serving a 19-year sentence for theft and attempted jailbreak. If he's caught committing another crime, he'll then be imprisoned to serve out a life sentence on one of France's infamous slave galleys, rowing an oar while chained to his fellow prisoners. And... Jean Valjean has a problem upon his release from prison. He's got a bad habit of stealing things. He can't seem to break that habit. Now, when the Bishop of Digne provides shelter to him for the night, how does Valjean express his thanks? He runs off with the bishop's silverware, considerable value. The police find Valjean lurking about with a stash of silver, and they apprehend him. They bring him back to the kind bishop because they were able to identify where the silver came from. And then what do you think happens at that point? If you're familiar with this story, the bishop reports to the police that he himself, in fact, gifted the silver to Valjean and that he intended actually to give him two additional candlesticks as well. And the police leave. And then the bishop looks at the thief and he says to him, use whatever money you can get for these candlesticks in order to begin a life of honest work. Now, this, I didn't make this up. Uh, The French novelist, Victor Hugo, began his masterpiece, Les Miserables, with this vignette, this incident. And what follows is then a moving tale of redemption in one of the longest novels ever written. At the center of it all is this this man, this, this wretch, Jean Valjean, a thief who becomes a hero of mercy. And this morning, we're going to be taking a very close look at mercy. The heart of the Beatitudes here in Matthew chapter, twi- uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 to 12, I'm sorry. These blessed statements that are punctuating again and again and again with this word, blessed, blessed, blessed. They set out for us the marks of Christian discipleship, what kingdom living looks like and what human flourishing in the church looks like. And in the middle of it all, our Lord puts mercy. He puts mercy. The Beatitudes, backing up a little bit, they're not requirements for entry into the kingdom of heaven. And they're not promises even of divine reward for good Christians and obedient living. Rather, the Beatitudes are Christ our King's authoritative declarations of what it means for his disciples to live in such a way to produce spiritual happiness in God's world, both in their lives and in the lives of others around them, and holiness of life in God's service, as we read from Romans 12. In a word, Jesus is setting before his disciples the marks, the authoritative royal declarations and decrees of what human flourishing as creatures made in God's image looks like. The fifth beatitude here, right at the center of them, 
Most commentators read eight Beatitudes. I actually think there's nine because there are nine blessed statements. And so number five is right dead center in them. We see blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And this provides to us that feature of kingdom living which must characterize, again, must characterize every interaction, every meeting between citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so what I shall seek to show you from our text this morning and the time that we have is that only the merciful in heart shall enjoy saving mercy from God. Mercy in thought, speech, and behavior is the defining trait of what it means to be reconciled to God, to be welcomed into his kingdom as a citizen and as a son or daughter, because only the merciful in heart shall enjoy saving mercy from God. We'll consider our text in two parts. First, we'll look at wholehearted mercy for our fellow men, and then we will look at divine mercy for needy sinners. Horizontal relation of mercy than the vertical relation of mercy. First, wholehearted mercy for our fellow man. The kingdoms of this world and even the entertainment industry, they relish revenge and revenge stories, but the kingdom of heaven is of mercy and there's no room for revenge between man and man. So what is mercy? In its broadest conception, mercy is compassion for those in need. It's compassion for those in need, especially those within the household of faith. You see a brother or a sister in great pain or need. Don't you children rush to find out what's wrong and then get your parents to help them out? Well, in the same way, in the household of faith, as brothers and sisters, if one of us is in need, it's incumbent upon the rest of us. It's required and expected of the rest of us to figure out if there's a way we can meet that need, if there's a way we can provide relief and aid. We see this in the lives of the saints, even if we just restrict ourselves to Scripture. We consider what Boaz said of Ruth, as I preached last summer. He said, all that you have done for your mother-in-law, remember, her mother-in-law was an Israelite of the household of faith, after the death of your husband has been fully reported to me and how you left your father and your mother in the land of your birth and came to a people that you did not previously know. And then he pronounces a benediction. May the Lord reward your work, Ruth, and your wages be full from the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to seek refuge. We see it as well in the life of David, Ruth's descendant. In 1 Samuel chapter 24, we have that famous incident when David had an opportunity to take the life of Saul. He could have slain him right there in the cave while Saul was um, indisposed, so to speak. But what does David do? Instead, he trims off the edge of Saul's cloak. And then his conscience bothers him. And he goes out into the open and calls after Saul. And he says, behold, this day your eyes have seen that the Lord had given you today into my hand in the cave. And he presents that scrap of cloth as proof. And some said to kill you, but my eye had pity, mercy, compassion on you. And I said, I will not stretch out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. May the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge me on you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancients says, out of the wicked comes forth wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. And Saul later on in that passage replies to David and part of what he says is this, 
You are more righteous than I, for you have dealt well with me, mercifully with me. Well, I have dealt wickedly, mercilessly with you. And then later on in the history of Israel, uh, shortly before the northern kingdom gets taken away into exile, we have the, the career of Elijah the prophet. And in 1 Kings chapter 17, I'll just summarize it. Elijah meets a poor widow and her son. She's about to starve to death. She has no way to make the bread that they need to live. And he performs a miracle that provides her with the materials she needs to make bread. He saves them. He shows them compassion. And then when in God's Providence, his dark providence on this occasion, her son dies. She brings a request to Elijah to do something, and Elijah raises the boy back to life, confirming his message and his station as a true prophet of God, because that's the confession that falls from her lips after that great miracle. Indeed, you are a true prophet of God. And what is at the heart of his confirmation as a prophet? Mercy, compassion, pity on this woman. And of course, as we'll see in the life of Christ, feeding the multitudes when they were hungry and healing the sick and distressed and exercising demons, we see again and again his compassion, his mercy, his pity, even his tears for his friends down into the depths of his soul and his emotional life. And this mercy, as we define it, it's tied closely in with forgiveness as we'll see throughout the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of Jesus' teaching. And so I'll get to that in just a little bit. But the next thing we need to consider, having defined mercy between men as this having compassion for those in need, that's very important to understand what it is Christ is setting out before us. We then ask, okay, who are those in need? Who needs mercy and compassion from us? Well, very simply put, Christ doesn't restrict it at all. Look, he says, blessed are the merciful. He doesn't say merciful to just your brothers in the faith or just the poor or just the contrite of heart even. He just says, blessed are the merciful. There's no restriction that we're given here in this text. And so what I propose to you is this. We are to be merciful to all those who suffer from sin, either their own sin or the sin that surrounds them and afflicts them in this world. Understand what I'm putting before you, how heavy that is. We're to be merciful to everyone because everybody suffers from sin, even when the suffering is clearly of their own doing. Brothers preparing for the ministry, I'm a young pastor, but in talking to Dr. Piper and Dr. Wilborn and, and others who've been long in the ministry, they've told me again and again, you must be patient and merciful to those who are destroying themselves and rejecting your calls to repent. That is a defining mark of a true prophet or a true minister of God in this world. And so take that from the Lord's lips here. Blessed are the merciful to all those who suffer from sin. But also those who, when we're, when we're showing mercy, let me rephrase this. When we're showing mercy as well, we must keep in mind we are addressing effects of sin as well, even and especially when it's not of one's own making. So in Ruth's case, she was merciful to Naomi who had suffered from the death of 
her husband and her sons and was without any help in the world. And Ruth showed mercy to that woman, compassion by seeking to help her. In the case of David with Saul, it was Saul's own sin that got him in that predicament. And David showed mercy to him because yet he was the Lord's anointed, though an enemy of David himself. And then for Elijah, I think that's fairly clear, showing mercy to a woman starving with her son and then a woman bereaved of her son. And in Jesus Christ, as we'll see, showing mercy to sinners in need, principally and first and foremost, by coming to us in the first place. Yes, Jesus healed multitudes and fed the masses, but reflect on the fact that he condescended to us at all. That's a great expression of Christ's mercy to us. So then how do we show mercy? Well, the best illustration of it is found in Luke chapter 10 in the parable of the Good Samaritan. A very familiar uh, teaching story that Christ uh, gives to his disciples in Luke's gospel. Where you have a priest and a Levite of the house of Israel passing from Jericho to Jerusalem along the road. They see a fellow Israelite, a fellow Judean on the ground. Perhaps dead, but certainly uh, beat up and robbed. And instead of going to his aid, these leaders in Israel go to the other side of the road and avoid him, lest they become defiled in case he's dead, in case he's a corpse. Because they're on their way to Jerusalem to worship the Lord, and they have that in mind. They don't want to risk defilement. Well, then a faithful Samaritan who's on that same road, presumably to do the same thing, to worship the Lord in Jerusalem, risks getting defiled risks wasting his whole trip in order to see if he can bring relief to this man on the side of the road. And the good Samaritan in this, the point is twofold. He's bringing relief even when inconvenient. And that's really what mercy looks like. Bringing relief even when it inconveniences you. Children, when you're at home and you want something, but your baby brother or sister is in the way, what is the merciful thing to do? To knock over your baby brother or sister in order to reach the thing you're wanting to get? Or to be patient and wait? Or even just be polite and say, excuse me, and help them move out of the way? Or just wait for them or whatever? That's a very simple expression of mercy. More extensive ones, adults, I've even witnessed in this congregation as we've had members, some of you, Volunteer to do things here around the church building for the good of everybody else or visit somebody in need who seems to be in a situation of their own making that's really desperate and wanting to try to see if there's a way we can help or even render aid to them. And as I've mentioned, the gifts that we've sent uh, both at home and abroad to those who are in acute and desperate situations and need. All of these are good examples of bringing relief even when inconvenient, even when there's a cost to us. But I do want to point out that just as with the other Beatitudes that we've gone through so far and as we will go through in coming weeks, this mercy, it's not self-generated. You don't manufacture it and you're not born with it as a person. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in your heart. Now, there are a lot of nice people in the world who seem nice to us, who are very kind, who will call their friends when they're feeling good and say, hey, how are you doing? I just want to catch up. How, how are you? But it's the merciful friend that comes to your aid when you're in distress and it costs them something. 
Christ will even teach on this later when he says, even a, um, even a, a, a wicked man will die for his brother, but only a good man will give his life for his enemy. And truly in that, we have a great example of mercy, spirit-wrought compassion, the work of God in the hearts of regenerate <laughs> believers. Is this mercy important? This wholehearted mercy for our fellow men, is it an important thing? I hope you've already determined that it is based on everything I've said and what Christ says. But there are some specific reasons that we can build a case for why this is important, why this is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian in community with other Christians. First of all, to neglect it is explicitly stated as wicked in God's word. It's most clearly put forward in uh, Psalm 109, verses 16 and 17, where we read, because he did not remember to show loving kindness. That's the Hebrew word chesed, which means mercy, loyalty, covenant love, and faithfulness. It's that word that described Ruth and Boaz again and again and again that we looked at last summer. But because he did not remember to show this mercy, but persecuted the afflicted and needy man and the despondent in heart to put them to death, He also loved cursing, so it came to him, and he did not delight in blessing, so it was far from him. Is this the description of a righteous man? No, it's a man of wickedness. It's the kind of model we want to avoid and forsake in our lives, in our repentance. Well, that psalm, to put a real point to it, earlier says this in verse 8. Let his days be few, let another take his office. Do you recognize that verse from the New Testament anywhere? In Acts chapter 1, verse 20, to whom is that verse applied? Judas Iscariot, that great traitor of old, he who betrayed the Lord Jesus Christ for 30 pieces of silver. That is the picture of mercilessness that's given to us in the Bible. A great wickedness. It's self-destructive as well. Not only do we know Judas's demise, taking his own life in the field of blood, but we read in Proverbs 21, 13, he who shuts his ear to the cry of the poor will also cry himself and not be answered. And then Psalm 11, or Proverbs eleven seventeen: 17, the merciful man does himself good, but the cruel man does himself harm. So you see this mercilessness, it's self-destructive, but mercy, it's life-giving, both outward to others, but even back to yourself. The neglect is wicked, but the careful observation of mercy is righteous. Further, God positively demands mercy from his people. He says in Hosea 6.6, for I delight in mercy, again, that word chesed, rather than sacrifice, and in the knowledge of God, rather than burnt offerings. And he says in Micah 6.8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness or mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. God positively commands this. And he positively warns against mercilessness. James 2.13, he says, For judgment will be merciless to one who has shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs. Over judgment. Perhaps most significantly for us today, as we consider the Sermon on the Mount and as we look to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, Christ models and teaches mercy as one of the major themes of his program 
for the salvation of the world, what he has come to accomplish, what he has come to build in his community. He does this in his ministry. As I've already said, he showed mercy to the infirm, to the blind, to the destitute, to those afflicted with all manner of illness, even to the demon possessed. And he shows compassion to the hungry crowds again and again, saying to his disciples, I have compassion on them. They're hungry. Let's get them food. In the sermon, as we'll see in the next months, as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, um, he calls his disciples to forgive lest they be condemned by God. And that's tied into mercy and compassion. In the next chapter, Matthew 6, 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. You see a similar construction. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. If you forgive, you shall be forgiven. But if you do not forgive them, if you do not express mercy to those who have wronged you, then your father will not forgive your transgressions. In other words, you will not receive mercy from God the Father. See, some of you have a look on your face saying, when did Zach become works righteousness? We will clear that up in the next heading. But the point I wish to make to you is that Christ gives these words to the merciless. Then I will declare to them, the merciless, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. And he illustrates this teaching in Matthew chapter 18, verses 21 through 35 in a very familiar parable, the parable of the unmerciful servant, the one who's been forgiven much and yet cannot forgive even a little that's owed to him. And in verses 33 to 35 in Matthew 18, we read, should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And this Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. And Jesus says, my heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. And then in his teaching, as we're beginning to see, he taught many more lessons showing the central importance of this theme of mercy, love for enemies. In Matthew 5, 43 through 48. Discreet giving to the poor. In Matthew 6, 1 through 4. The golden rule. In Matthew 7, verse 12. Meeting the needs of the thirsty. In Matthew 10, 42. Receiving helpless, needy children. In Matthew 18, 5. Restoring a brother caught in a notorious sin. In Matthew 18, 15 to 18. Achieving greatness, not through building up oneself, but through humble service, compassionate, merciful service in Matthew 23, 1 to 12. And then most forcefully toward the end of his ministry, he lays out the criteria for the last judgment in Matthew 25, 31 through 46, where he says in part, then the king will say to those on his right, come You who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. All of these specific, very specific and concrete examples of what it means to show mercy one to another. This is what Christ sets before you as necessary, 
as important, as central to his ethical vision and mission for human flourishing in the kingdom of God. Have you met that standard of mercy set forth in scripture? Have you met that standard of mercy given to us in the life and teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ? Most assuredly, you have not, and neither have I. How often have we been merciless, self-seeking, demanding, consumed with your own interests at the expense of others? Surely you've done much good in your life, O Christian, but yet how much have you left undone? How much have you transgressed? We are inconsistent, fickle creatures, are we not? Not only in demonstrating mercy, but even in, in especially in feeling compassion for those suffering in our midst and for one another. How often does a haughty look flash across our face or we become puffed up with pride ourselves and think, what's wrong with that guy? Surely I come before you as a sinner myself in all of these ways. So what are we to do? What hope do we have? Well, I come this morning, not just with this confession, but with good news for you, with good news for me, good news for all those who fail to show mercy as Christ commands, displayed before us as it was displayed before Moses on Mount Sinai is the glory of God in Christ, namely his goodness his mercy to the likes of you and me, to the likes of needy sinners. So as we've examined wholehearted mercy for our fellow man and what's required of us, what Christ puts as central to his ethical vision for human flourishing and the wise way of living, having confronted you with our common failure to demonstrate this mercy to those around us, now we must consider what Christ sets before his disciples in the second half of this morning's beatitude. Divine mercy for needy sinners. Divine mercy for needy sinners. First, what is this mercy? It's compassion for sinners in need. It's compassion for sinners in need. Compassion not from fellow man. Remember, this is divine. From God himself, who is utterly without any imperfection. And that expresses itself, namely, in present and future pardon for sins. And I say that based on the New Testament witness. In 2 Timothy 1, 16 to 18, Paul writes this, The Lord grant mercy to the house of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he was in Rome, he eagerly searched for me and found me. The Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. Speaking of judgment day. Future forgiveness, present forgiveness, starting now, extending for eternity, I should say, to avoid confusion. And you know very well what services he rendered at Ephesus, Paul, ends on the goodness and mercy of Onesiphorus. But he pleads, may the Lord grant to him to find mercy from the Lord, from God, on that day of judgment. And then also in James 2.13, remember what the second half said there? Mercy triumphs over judgment. Surely that's true today. When we extend mercy rather than merciless judgment, it's good for us and our souls and our hearts. But mercy shall triumph over judgment at the last day because Christ triumphs over sin and condemnation now and for eternity. So who needs this mercy? All who have sinned. And that includes everybody. Everyone who is descended from Adam by ordinary generation. 
That everyone who is, has a human father and a human mother, all men, Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned, Jew and Gentile, and fall short of the glory of God. Nobody is exempt. We all need this mercy. And you absolutely need this mercy if you're not convinced yet. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. I look out on this, on this crowd here, our little group, and I'm fairly confident each of you know and know quite well that you are indeed a sinner. Yes, you've been walking with the Lord for a long time, but yet you're conscious of your sins day by day and you're in need of this mercy from God. Otherwise, you know what your wages shall be. So how does God show mercy? Well, very generally, he shows mercy in daily life. Matthew 5, 45, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and he sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Some call this common grace or general beneficence. I'm not going to get into that theological issue, but it's indisputable. God shows mercy to us and to all men each and every day by maintaining the, uh, the order of the world and of the cosmos so that we would not fall apart. But he also demonstrates it generally to those his elect by his patience, what some translations call the long suffering of God. He is not quick to punish us and destroy us or blot us out, but rather he's patient with us and pleads with us to repent and come to him. And he's patient with sinful humanity in that so that no man will have an excuse on that day of judgment that I didn't know you, I didn't hear about you, you didn't give me a chance. No, God has given us every chance we can have to turn to him in his mercy. But we see it specifically, this mercy in redemption in the covenant of grace. His character was revealed to us in Exodus 34 and verses six and seven, just to remind you, the Lord passed by in front of Moses and what did he proclaim? Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy and truth, loving kindness, steadfast love and mercy, who keeps loving kindness, mercy and steadfast love for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression and sin. This is the very character of God. It's expressed and made known to us in covenant. That's what God was cutting with Moses on the mountain, writing in tablets of stone, his covenant with the people of Israel. And our confession of faith says in the seventh chapter and talking about the covenants describes God coming down to us by this manner as a voluntary condescension on God's part, which he hath pleased to express by way of covenant. You see, after the death sentence that was levied on Adam and Eve after, in their fall from the garden, um, after that death sentence had been put on mankind, Quote, the Lord was pleased to make a second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace, whereby he freely offereth unto sinners life and salvation by Jesus Christ, requiring of them faith in him that they may be saved and promising to give unto all those that are ordained unto life his Holy Spirit to make them willing and able to believe. And then Westminster Larger Catechism number 30 gives this answer to the question related to that it says, God doth not leave. He does not leave or forsake all men to perish in the estate of sin and misery into which they fell by the breach of the first covenant, commonly called the covenant of works, but of his mere love and mercy delivereth his elect out of it and bringeth them into an estate of salvation by the second covenant, commonly called the covenant of grace. See, it's the mercy of God. 
that then causes him to put it crassly, if God can be caused to do anything. But it's the very nature of God that then bursts out into the revelation of God by way of covenant that he indeed forgives the trespassers of needy, the trespasses of needy sinners who come to him in faith. But it's revealed to us as well in Jesus Christ and his works, most especially the character of his person. Isaiah 42, 3 says, A bruised reed he will not break, and a dimly burning wick he will not extinguish. He will faithfully bring forth justice, and in that justice is much mercy. And that passage of Scripture, Isaiah 42, is then picked up in Matthew chapter 12, 18 to 21, where Matthew is inserting commentary on the works of Christ and says, because he was this, because Jesus, your Lord, is your Savior, who will not break a bruised reed, who will not extinguish a dimly burning wick. He has mercy on us. And then we see that in eternity, we see the mercy of God and how he shows it. Remind you, again, the wages of sin is death. What about the second half of that verse? But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. What is eternal life? It's described in the next beatitude, so I'm not going to get into it in detail. But in Matthew 5, 8, it's described as seeing God, beholding his face, And the Westminster Shorter Catechism describes it as being, quote, made perfectly blessed in the full enjoying of God for all eternity. This is what he sets before us as his great expression of mercy. Himself. Himself. We will see God himself. Let us not fill you with wonder. It is specifically the enjoyment of his mercy for all eternity. We will not experience his justice and wrath. That is for another place. But those who are in Christ will experience his mercy in heaven for all eternity. They will benefit from the everlasting Passover. What do I mean by that? Well, for all those who shall receive mercy, as it says in our beatitude, God's just wrath and condemnation for sin has passed them by has passed over them, having been decisively poured out on the Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's tree, on the cross, as he, the suffering servant of the Lord, took upon himself the sins of those who have been called and chosen by God and satisfied the sacrifice, the, um, the, the requirement of the sacrifice as the Lamb of God who took upon himself the sins of the world. Do you know this mercy? Have you internalized this mercy? Well, if you've received this divine mercy of Christ Jesus, then your life will be characterized by sincere, heartfelt mercy for your fellow man. It won't be perfect in this life, but it will be the character of your life as a Christian. You cannot receive God's mercy and forgiveness without repenting from your merciless, unforgiving sin nature. We're all born with that, and we must turn from that and forsake that in repentance as we lay hold of Christ and his offer of salvation. You cannot claim to be repentant before God, to be repenting from your merciless, unforgiving sin nature without actually having compassion on others. A compassion which will flow out of, it's not the grounds of, but it will flow out of the heart in sincere demonstration of mercy and compassion. 
You cannot claim to have repented from your sins and to be looking unto Christ if at the same time you are mercilessly fixated on the sins of others and what they owe you. Isn't that the point of the parable of the unmerciful servant? To show mercy and to receive mercy, to demonstrate it and to be the the beneficiary of it from God. They're like two silver strings inextricably wound together around a a cord of precious or a core of precious gold. You can't take them apart without destroying the string. And in this case, that core is God's grace, his, his loving kindness, his truth. And if you know this mercy, brothers and sisters, you will be a man or woman of meekness and gentleness as described in the third beatitude. You will be one who does not insist upon his or her own interests and demands, but rather says, Lord, thy will be done. What can I do for others? For to be meek is to acknowledge to others that we ourselves are sinners. We don't deserve God's mercy and forgiveness. And yet we have it by his grace. And to be merciful then is to have compassion on others, even when they don't deserve it, knowing that they too are sinners in need. So where does your mercy story begin? Not in 1815, not in Digne, France. But has God swept you up in a wave of mercy rushing out from the cross of Christ? Has he done that in your life already? Can you testify to his saving grace? Or are you rejecting his message and offer of mercy and grace yet? Are you pursuing your own interests in hardness of heart and malice toward those around you? My friends, regardless of how far you've come or how far you need to go, you need his mercy. And I plead with you on behalf of Christ, take it in hand and in heart. Both initially, children, make it your own, but also brothers and sisters, as you walk through this life, remind yourself, I am to be merciful. I am to be merciful for such has the Lord been to me. And this is the mark, the central mark of the Christian life. As you heard, it is freely given and it will unalterably change your life for the better. In this is human flourishing. Only the merciful in heart shall enjoy saving mercy from God now and forevermore. Wholehearted mercy for our fellow man is indeed the pattern of life for those who know divine mercy for needy sinners. See how it all fits together in an indissoluble bond, inextricable cord. Knowing God's mercy in Christ and following after Jesus, it might not make you healthier or wealthier in this world. Indeed, as we shall see as we continue studying the Beatitudes in Christ's life and teaching, true followers of Jesus will see much physical and emotional suffering, even outright persecution for pursuing a life of mercy and holiness, but God's mercy freely offered to you in Christ Jesus when received by sincere spirit wrought and worked faith will make you progressively wiser day by day in this gentleness, this, this, I barked that out. I should redo that in this gentleness in patience, mercy to others, and holiness of life and joyfulness in the truth, that joy which is everlasting and stored up for us in heaven. In your repentance from sins committed, those actual transgressions, 
your sin that's inherited from Adam and the pollution of sin yet in your body and in your spirit? Are you still able to impose your will, your wants, your needs, your supposed rights upon others? Can you say on one hand, I repent of all that. And on the other hand, say, hey, you owe me this. Cough it up. Of course not. But you would do well to rest in the confidence of the truth that Christ our King has declared unto you in all this beatitude. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. My prayer for each of you and for this church as we continue to live and labor together, as this little church continues to grow up and as especially you children continue to grow up one with another, is that we, all of us, and each of us would be people of mercy, men and women of mercy, according to God's word and by his spirit. Please stand together as we pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina Highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.